across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is just over a week until Christmas and all through the House of Commons, not a creature is stirring. Not even a mouse. Do you see what I did there? You'll appreciate that after 10 months of lockdowns, fire breaks, closures, quarantines, travel bans and police actions, we are where we are. And this morning, I will be attempting to figure out exactly where that is because I don't think anybody is particularly sure. According to all the newspapers this morning, Boris Johnson is fighting for Christmas, while at the same time he's fighting for Britain over in Brussels. Later, he'll be fighting at Prime Minister's questions with Sir Keir Starmer, uh, who will remain very calm at all times and say absolutely nothing of any note whatsoever. And then we will bring you all of that in the company of Talk Radio's political correspondent, Charlotte Ivers. First up this morning, though, we're talking to William Clouston from the SDP about what happens after December the 31st with the news this morning that Ursula von der Leyen reckons the next few days are going to be decisive. Really? Not exactly Mystic Meg, is it? Fishing apparently is still a sticking point, uh, but Brexit is coming in whatever form. According to those who are in the know, uh, there is going to be a vote probably uh, either Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday of next week. And let's face it, it becomes Christmas Eve then and they'll all have to scurry home to their various different family Christmases. Or will they? Because, of course, Boris Johnson might cancel Christmas. Did you ever think you'd live in a world where your elected representatives could tell you whether or not you can open a cracker or not? 0344 499 1000. Meanwhile, uh, we will speak to a GP today who's beginning COVID vaccinations in his surgery. But the system is already creaking with a shortage of fridges for storage, a shortage of training and a shortage of availability. Last night, I heard more tales of woe from the test and release scheme. So if you are scheduled for getting some kind of a vaccination today, uh, we'd love to hear how easy or how difficult that has been. 0344 499 1000. Neil Oliver will also be here later to give us his take on the week. In the Sunday Times at the weekend, he confessed to missing people so much, he's even been thinking of heading to church. And we'll be joined by Charlie Ray, the former Royal Editor of The Sun, with the great news that the Duke and Duchess of Netflix are to take me on in the podcast charts with a series of kind and compassionate recordings for their army of fans. Good luck with that. Give me strength. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, the whole Brexit thing has become incredibly boring now, which is quite dangerous because the more bored you become with it, the less you care about how it actually ends up. And I wonder sometimes whether this is now the modern form of kind of water torture where our politicians, our political leaders, our uh, elected representatives go on and on and on and on with stuff for such a long time that everybody just gives up. It's a bit like fighting the old parking fines at Southwark Council. Eventually, you just pay them because you can't be bothered arguing anymore. This, I think, is where we are. And this, I think, is where uh, we find ourselves. Let's talk to William Clouston, leader of the Social Democrat Party, to see where he thinks it's all going. William, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. There is a sense of this kind of overbearing boredom that we're all going through at the moment, either because of COVID uh, or either because of Brexit or either because of Christmas. You know, everything seems to just drag on and on and on. Could it be that this is their policy? Uh, yeah, there's a sort of water torture aspect to this from the EU's point of view. That's true. Um, I just think it's it is actually very important we get this final stage right. Mm. Uh, and um, as a party, we advocate uh, a WTO solution. I don't I don't think anything on the table from what you read from the EU is worth signing up to. Uh, level playing field? No, that's just a way of the EU controlling us, um, controlling our industrial policy going forward. That can't be acceptable. Mm. 
their position on uh, fisheries and, and um, coastal state is ridiculous. Um, and, and, and frankly, I think people, a lot of commentators are failing to look at the benefits of a WTO solution with a little bit of trade friction. Um, in, the, in, the, in the sort of narrative, ever since the Brexit vote happened uh, in 2016, there's been a, um, a preoccupation with uh, trade deals and with this idea that you can't sell into the single market unless you're a member of the EU. Mm. I mean, uh, Anna Subri was on record at one stage saying that if we leave the EU, that our exports will go to zero. Preposterous. Yeah. Actually, what we're arguing for is uh, a change to a, to a, to a softer globalism, uh, a more domestic focus in our policy, and to start being less indifferent to what is made, where and by whom. So you would take the view that uh, that you don't necessarily have to promote British goods as such or British manufacturing, but you can, in fact, just encourage people to buy from wherever. Uh, no, I think we would we would encourage um, British manufacturing. I think one of the problems um, again, I mean, I, you spoke to John Rental yesterday and you, you were discussing what the benefits from his point of view, because he's a Remainer, what the benefits of EU membership mm. were. And the best he could come up with was that it, it stops a little bit of form filling at the border. Well, he's got to do better than that. Um, look at what look at what the model. The, you know, I'm not just talking about the EU, but I'm talking about our global trade uh, policy model has done to say economies like the United States mm. and Britain over the last 30 years. It's gutted industry. It's created permanent uh, trade deficits, and it's beggared our consumers because as a motor of growth, when people had high wages, when you, when the factories were open and we were pro more productive. Um, you relied on your consumer earning well and spending well. If you undermine that, if you hollow that out, which is basically what we've done, you get yourself into a situation where the only consumer spending that can take place is, is off debt. Mm. And it, look at the figures, something like 63% of corporate profits in the UK are derived from either government debt or household debt. Well, that's not sustainable. And I would argue, I know, you know, we, we're probably the only party arguing for this, but I want to see... Uh, a, pretty radical change from the existing pattern of not caring where things are made. Mm. I think we need to get industrial capacity up. You know, Mike, manufacturing industry now in this country is only 10%, 11%. Right. Well, we're told, aren't we, and we have been told since the sort of Tony Blair era, that we are leaders in world financial services. And I think most people uh, walking around in the streets of this country would say, actually, I'm not really sure what that is. What is world financial services and what does it mean? Does it mean we've got loads of people working here uh, from bigger corporate American merchant banks, uh, taking loads and loads of money out of our economy and then taking it all back to America? You know, what does it actually mean? But how do you get manufacturing back, William, when we've sort of allowed it to disappear to places like China, India, you know, other parts of the world. Well, let's just examine that. So, um, you know, one of the examples I use is something you'll be aware of, which is the, is the and I'm using the United States as an example, but it applies to here because we've got the same policy, basically. So if you go to Penn Station, you get the train from, uh, from, from New York down to Philly. You will see it's 90 miles or something like that. And you, you've got wetlands, and you've got suburbia and all sorts of other things. But you've got acres and acres of burnt out, basically gutted, uh, factories mm. which are now closed and are full of graffiti and it, no any society should be ashamed of that actually but what the cause of that the real cause of that is an indifference by those who govern us to what we make what they've done is opened it up uh, to China and to the lowest producer the lowest cost producer in uh, globally to, to, to take all the business um, and 
the, the, in the States, the result is unemployment, the mining out of the industrial wage. The industrial wage used to be the foundation of the family. Mm. You know, and you, you, you dismantle that and you, you effectively dismantle the, you know, family life as well. I think there's been far too much indifference. They, a lot of this is caused by the ideology that a lot of uh, politicians on the right and you know, even people like Tony Blair, who economically was pretty much on the right, of, of just being indifferent to mm. it, saying, you know, leave it to the market. Well, if you leave it to the market entirely, you'll end up with you know, one large factory making all the sh shoes in the world in China, by the way, under near slave conditions. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, it's not really a free market if you're competing with a country uh, which can afford to pay its uh, workers barely any money at all and control them in such a way as it's not really in any way um, you know, uh, e economically viable in any other place. No, it's not. I mean, it's not. It's not fair competition, and it's it's highly exploitative. And again, we we we're not caring about the conditions under which those workers are are, are working. Mm. But strategically, I mean, just we we have a whole generation of politicians that have been terrified of any trade friction. Personally, I would go for some trade friction. I I I, I want a WTO solution precisely because it does give a little bit of protection to domestic. Producers, I know it's heresy to say this on the radio, but it would give a little bit of protection to domestic producers. Mm. And we'd, by the way, we'd also uh, uh, collect about twelve billion in tariffs. Yeah, well, interesting, isn't it? Though that during the whole kind of you know at the height of of the of the Brexit debate, I suppose you might call it that, uh, when people were shouting through megaphones down in Westminster, you would always hear the Remainer argument, which was. You can't point to any place in the world that operates on WTO rules, uh, which would be in any way viable for us. Is that true? That's not true at all. I mean, it's, it's nonsense. You could only I mean, you could only want we, we live in a country, as I say, where, you know, manufacturing is down at 10 percent. Imports are over 30 percent of GDP. Um, the difference to the economy, if the Bank of England and the Trade Department and, the, and everyone else was mandated to narrow those gaps, would be huge. I mean, you, you need to get manufacturing up to about 18%. And you need imports down to something like 25. Now, that can be done. But I would remind people that you cannot do it, unless you take control of your own policy, your, your own industrial policy, create some special industrial zones, create some trade friction and get some of these industries back. I mean, fishing is quite a nice example. Yeah, where you know, for as long as for as long as you stay in the EU, you, you, you can't control your fishing waters. I mean, do we want a fishing fleet in our own waters or not? I think we fish something like 40% of the catch. Mm. And we, you know, I, I'd accept in the talks, I would accept, obviously, we don't have the capacity to fish it now. So Yeah, but, uh, we, actually, don't, but we don't have the capacity to fish it because we gave it all away to the French and the Spanish. And so it's a kind of, uh, it's a mighty, I think, national episode of self-harm that was started in the early 70s with Ted Heath who said, yeah. well, actually, we don't really eat as much fish as you lot do, so why don't you just take it all away? And to then say, yeah, well, now we haven't got much of an industry, well, guess what? That's exactly what happens, isn't it? But that's because of the indifference, Mike. And again, I, I'm, I'm going to point the finger at the, you know, the sort of globalist, liberal, free trade purists who literally think it doesn't matter if you produce anything. You know, that's, that's yeah. the rhetoric we've had. Uh, and and, and the, a whole generation of conservative politicians and new Labour think this. And I'm afraid, honestly, we're at the end of this road. Uh, the pandemic actually uh, exposed the folly of this, where the country was, was reduced to near beggary to get basic supplies. And the whole idea that you would have a, a series of strategic industries which you'd actually 
protect and care for, make sure. I mean, the fact is, Mike, other countries do this. Go to South Korea and have a look at their corporations. They, and their government and corporations wouldn't dream of selling off their very best industrial assets. Right. In this country, we've had for years, absolutely years, it's Roundtrees, it's, it's um, Cadbury's, it's Jag the whole of British industry is for sale. And it's because we're completely indifferent mm. to it. But I, I, the, and, the and surely is, the European Union has played its role in that, hasn't it? Because we have for so long been told by the, our masters, supposedly political masters, I use that very advisedly, by the way, because uh, I don't see them like that at all. Um, but we've been more or less told that we're not really supposed to be patriotic. We're not really meant to be nationalistic. We're not really meant to be jingoistic because that's all wrong. And what we should be doing instead uh, is supporting this great uh, economic and social endeavour known as the European Union, for which we should all be very proud to be a part. Well, that's just a very good way of tying your hands behind your back so right. you can be hit, hit hard, basically. Mm. I mean, it's very foolish. I mean, and, and, you know, my political hero, Peter Shaw, saw this in the, in the 70s. Yeah. You, you've got to be able to act in the interests of your citizens. Now, fair enough. I, I mean, a lot of the corporations are run, the executives of the corporations are running the corporations for their own benefit. Uh, you, the thing, I mean, it's not just that they... They, they're overpaid, many of them, you know, and some of them, I think Ricardo's boss is getting £2,000 more than the average uh, employee. Mm. Some of this is just obscene, but it's just that the the, the decisions they've made uh, in, in outsourcing factories, if you close a factory in Middlesbrough or Philly or whatever, and you outsource it, you harm that domestic um, economy a great deal. Now, it might make your, in the short term, it might give you some profits, but in the long term, you're headed for a, 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 a permanent trade deficit. And again, I would, just some very basic economics. If you, if you permanently run trade deficits, I mean, you can, only, you can only pay for imports in three ways. You can pay for imports by making something today which you sell, or selling something which you've made in the past or which you own, or by issuing debt. Now, that's a basic uh, mathematical identity. That's just true. And year after year, our political class have said it doesn't matter that you have this great big trade deficit. We've got a 95 billion trade deficit with the EU. And I would argue that our biggest, our most problematic trade partner is the EU. Mm. If I, I mean, the sense of putting some, a little bit of trade friction between that, I mean, look at agricultural products. Do you really believe, Mike, that um, French, agricultural products, whether it's cheese or wine or whatever, do you think that's the world price? Do you think we couldn't get equivalent products elsewhere if we wanted to? Well, I'm sure we could. I mean, the fact is, is that there are certain things that were made exclusively by certain countries many years ago. But quite rightly now, lots of things can be made all over the place. I mean, we can make champagne in this country. Can't call it champagne. Uh, but some of the French companies are actually buying land in Kent in order to grow grapes because they think that's the future. So, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy to continue to buy whatever is offered to me uh, if I like the price. Um, I don't particularly wish to be put into a kind of a, um, a straitjacket in, in terms of trade by any government, whether it's our own or somebody else's. Yeah, you need to be, you, the key word is unfettered. You need to be, you need, the, 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 the government needs to act and actually corporations need to get with this as well and mm. start acting in the national interest. 
uh, you know, the 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 um, the interest of the corporation isn't always the the national interest. No. I think that's something that we need to. Would you offer Would you offer tax incentives then? Say, for example, to a company that wanted to come into this country and start up a fishing fleet, for example, because I I sort of have quite quite a lot of uh, faith in the fishing industries, as it were, because the one thing that we know there are in the sea is fish. So we might as well fish them out uh, as, as as opposed to letting somebody else do it. But in order to do that properly, we need somebody to invest in the business buy a load of boats and hire a load of people yeah that, that can be done quite easily if you, you but the prerequisite is that you own your own your control your own uh fishing waters yeah. i mean that's uh, but it, yeah there's not a shortage of capital mike i mean there's plenty of capital in fact the global savings i mean there's a glut of, of capital it's it's the the question is to what productive use you can put that capital mm. Um, so no, I mean it, it's a matter of will. Uh, what I'm, what we're fighting against as a party, and in the SDP, we're fighting against this indifference. People, our political class, have been indifferent to these things, and it yeah. should matter. Yes. you know, it really, really should matter whether we have our own domestic uh, fishing fleet. I mean, and so it's no problem at all. What, to be fair, to in, in, in terms of the talks, what you can't do is tomorrow, or you know, on the first of January, suddenly um, say, well get out of the water because we don't actually have the capacity to do it at the moment. But mm. no, there's no, in terms of uh, raising capital to buy that infrastructure and to get it back up and running, it's there. Right. You just well, it just seems it. like, it just seems like an obvious one to go for because at the moment, if you want to suddenly boost manufacturing, there's some right old fashioned manufacturing going on there uh, of the fish business, which has been allowed to be in decline for so many years, which you could mm. then fix. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it, but it's, it's, it's what we're, what you want is a, um, a rejig in the way we think as well, and and I'm very encouraged. There's a lot of a lot of younger people get this, um, and actually there is a link to uh, you know the environmental movement. I think you can only do what you can do domestically, but you know the the sort of economic model that we've had, Mike, of of your chest of drawers being full of fifty cheap T-shirts. I mean that's over. You'd be better off having five good ones, mm. and I think a lot of people understand that. Or how and about if you really over big, a certain age you don't wear T-shirts anymore? <laughs> oh shirts then yeah <laughs> yeah but but you get my point i mean the point is that i think we sh we need to we need to value what we buy more and we need to buy less off debt and more um you know and we need to produce more domestically and it can be done you've just got to want to do it and i, I see the pandemic actually i think will be one of these turning points in history where it, it really shouldn't it won't be the same again and it shouldn't be and 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 i as i say your your conversation with john rental yesterday I mean, the best you could come up with is is that you know you might not have to fill any forms. We, if he's missing the point, I mean, yeah. he's not. Paying, he's a nice guy, but he's not paying attention because what you need to do is to change the entire uh, system. Basically, you need to have a softer form of globalism, uh, a form of globalism that lets you make your own social and economic bargains and actually occasionally put your own citizens first. And you segued nicely into the pandemic there, because my final question to you is about Christmas. You know, I mean, mm. when did you ever think that you would be told whether or not you could have Christmas by your prime minister? Yeah, or, or his experts. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's uh, what can I say? We talked about this so much. Uh, what they don't grasp is that they've already told people that what the rules are. Mm. Yeah? So they've, they've already said, these are the rules. These are the days that you can come and celebrate Christmas. And, yeah. and people in the real world, not in sort of, you know, Westminster world, but in the real world, people have booked their time off from their factories and workplaces. Yeah. And they've booked trains and pl sometimes planes and other things. And they, they've made the arrangements. Mm. You can't suddenly say, 
by the way, you're not going to do it. Right. But to return to it, Mike, point I've made many times, if the government asks the public to do something reasonable, they will probably do it. If they ask uh, for something unreasonable, you will get public defiance. And I'm afraid I'm, I would never advocate people openly, you know, disobeying the law. But frankly, we're getting to the stage where people, you know, decent citizens are just going to have to make their own arrangements, I'm yeah. afraid. Absolutely right. And and the inconsistency of the rules, I think, is what bothers most people as well. William, delightful to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. If we don't see you before Christmas, uh, we'll see you afterwards. Hopefully you'll have a good one uh, with however many members of however many households uh, the laws require you to be able to do. Uh, we will talk some more about that coming up, of course, because this is the season to be, as uh, Boris Johnson says, jolly careful. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh, let's go now, though, live uh, to Dr. Lawrence Buckman, North London GP, former chair of the BMA GP committee, because, Dr. Lawrence, this morning, I believe, uh, you will be taking part in the vaccination process. Yes, in about three hours' time, I'll right. start vaccinating. Yeah, so um, how is that process been? We've heard a variety of different stories. We've got figures this morning from Nadine Sahawi, uh, Sahawi rather, who is the uh, vaccination minister, uh, saying that they've managed to get 137,897 people vaccinated in the first um, week of, uh, of this process, which some wags have pointed out will mean it will take about nine years to do the whole country. Yeah, that's about right if you work it like that. The fact is that all we've got is vaccine sufficient at the moment to do the very elderly, which mm. is all that we ever thought we were going to do before Christmas. And the fact is uh, each hub, and our clinic is a hub, um, will have 900 and something vaccines to use up. Uh, and they have to be used very quickly. So mm. that's how he can know with such accuracy how much, how many people will be done because that's how much stuff he's got. Yes. So in terms of how many people you will vaccinate today, um, uh, do you know what that number is? Uh, yes, we're doing them. At, uh, with, well, now, apparently, I'm going to be doing them this afternoon at every two and a half minute intervals okay. with, other, with other people doing other stuff. And I'm going to be doing it for four hours. That's pretty so, quick, isn't it? Uh, it's a quick turnaround, that. Uh, yeah, well, there won't be a lot of time for conversation, but they will have had the conversation with other people. What we're doing is a sort of uh, running process where they come in, they're checked in to make sure they are who they say they are. We're not just doing our own patients, by the way. We're mm. doing we're doing the whole of the area. Um, and so these will be will, so. Well, sorry, will these be people who have had a letter then from you? Yes. Yes, they've been called either by telephone or by letter mm. from the NHS vaccination service. Right, OK. So a lot of them, presumably, if they are older and elderly, will be quite perhaps not that mobile, right? Uh, well, those who, are, those who are immobile will have to be visited at home and that be done at home. Right. But that's going to be a different process to the ones we're doing are people who are able to be mobilised into the surgery. Because mm. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a nurse, right, and she was telling me that she got vaccinated um, at the weekend, not because she particularly was expecting to be vaccinated, but because some people who were supposed to be vaccinated in the hospital where she works weren't able to make the appointment for one reason or another, so they had to get rid of the, uh, the, the vaccines because, as you say, you can't store them for very long. No, you, you've basically got no effectively three, uh, three and a half days storage, right. which, which takes us to the weekend. So right. any that we've got left behind, it's 25 quid a shot. Right. Um, so that, if you get so, wasted money. Well, say, for example, you get to, I don't know, um, Friday afternoon and you've still got quite a lot left because for whatever reason, people weren't able to get to you or, you know, some some of them didn't fancy it or whatever. I mean, how would people know that? Are you able to kind of advertise that you've got the vaccine? 
I think surgeries locally will telephone round to see anybody else who falls into the age group. Right. What we're not going to do is start doing anybody who says, please, can I? Right. Um, but certainly anybody elderly or infirm who's of the right age uh, um, will start contacting them in the event that we have uh, spare. It's calculated that we, we've called more people than we've got vaccine for. Mm. So that shouldn't happen. OK. I mean, as you say, it might. Now, I spoke to a, a doctor yesterday, before yesterday, I think it was, who was talking about the problems he was having uh, with test and release. Now, I don't know whether you know anything about that. I know it's off to the side. It's a slightly different subject. But I've also been hearing stories from people that the test and release scheme is really not working at all well because so few people have been licensed to do it and so few counties have been licensed to do it. And in fact, the doctor I spoke to said he was required to register as a laboratory in order to, to operate it. Are you? Did you have to do that? No, we're not doing it. But I mean, did no, you have to? Op- but did you have to operate as a laboratory in order to give out the vaccine? No, no. You have to be a designated centre to do that, and that's a different process. Yeah. The test and release scheme, which I think is actually not a terrible idea, um, it's it just to make people laboratories. They're clearly not laboratories. Yeah. They're not geared for that. It really it it's it's made something typical. I'm afraid typical for the NHS. It's made something bureaucratic out of something that yes. didn't need to be. Well, that's the thing. I mean, and I, I always take uh, Sir David English's view on good ideas. It's only a good idea if it works, and if it doesn't work, it's not a very good idea. So, uh, but no. let's get back to, to your situation because also there are reports this morning that uh, there's been a bit of IT um, a problem uh, with with this uh, vaccination rollout. There's also been a lack of fridges supplied and all of that. So, you know, it's it's it, it as you say, they sort of seem to manage to find ways of administratively screwing things up yes the 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 it is um unusually uh, different to what we're used to uh but that's often the case with new it in any any environment and something as big as this where the it has got to talk to every other bit of the nhs right um, it really is very complicated but i've managed to make it work for me anyway. yeah because uh, it seems to be fairly straightforward although some of it's counterintuitive sure because you've got to in the end as well re- release these these guys today and then say can you please come back in three weeks or 20 or 25 days or whatever it is yes that's right. that, all of that has to happen today right so i mean have you had to boost your staff have you had to do anything else that you would otherwise be doing have you had to stop seeing other people because a lot of people have said to me yeah. over the course of the last few weeks it's been quite difficult even getting into a gp surgery because some gps are either not there uh, or they're nervous of people coming who haven't had a covid test right there's two separate things one is the hubs like us um, I, I'm a draftee in. Right. I'm one of the many people who've been drafted in to come and help out my practice, my old practice, okay. um, uh, to to help them out um, because they are shorter people. Mm. But by merging practices together into hubs, they've been able to get round that. So mm. that hasn't been a problem. Now, of course, the patients of the practices that are in the hub are not. Are, there is an emergency service, but that's all it is because they can't possibly do two things at once. Mm. Um, and clearly. Patients are going to be inconvenienced. Other patients are going to be inconvenienced by this. Of course they are. Elsewhere, there are GPs who understandably are very nervous about looking after people um, who could have COVID. And that's why there's a COVID service 
for whom I also work, mm. um, that assesses people away from the surgery. Right. And what's your general view, Dr Lawrence, just on the state of the virus right now? Because you and I have had many conversations over the last sort of seven, eight months about where we are. Where do you think we are? Because I'm hearing still an awful lot of those people in the NHS who complain that they don't want to see uh, the service being overwhelmed, um, even though that hasn't happened. They're still concerned that it might happen in, in January or it might happen in February. But we also hear from other people who say... You know, yes, we have to learn to live with this particular virus, and some of them are medical people, um, without having to shut everything down every five minutes. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a very fine balance between locking people up in their homes mm. on their own, which clearly is very safe, but doesn't do much for society, right. and would bankrupt everybody, yeah. or you allow people in a complete free-for-all and say, well, herd immunity will, will rescue the, the healthy ones. That's fine, except that there's such a thing called long COVID, yeah. which, is, is, which is a terrible burden on people who get it. And, of course, the percentage of people who are going to die from it. And because of that, you can't just say, let's have a free-for-all. So what you have to do is see what you can do to make the place as safe as possible. And I think at the moment the virus is accelerating, and I'm not entirely sure why that is. I suspect it's because people have relaxed their guard a bit. And I don't blame them. You know, they've had months and months of this. Um, and it's how do we persuade people to be a bit more careful rather than lock them away? Mm. And it's, it's how you balance these. I don't think it's a clever argument. I'm, I'm pleased I'm not a politician. <laughs> I'm very pleased you're not a politician as well, uh, yeah. because you could probably be, be not saying any of what you've just said. But the bottom line is, as well, for, for many people, they say, yes, it's all very well to talk about long COVID. We don't know much about it. Uh, we don't really know how many people it's affecting. And in general, there are many things that people suffer from uh, and, and that they get and they become ill and sometimes they die. Um, and in the end, we're going to have to start looking at this like one of those diseases, aren't we? Yes, and that's why there is a COVID assessment service yeah. uh, that, that deals with these cases, and that's why I work for them. Um, and uh, they are there to try and maintain as much normality in the NHS as possible. Yeah. And you're quite right. For many people, this is going to be a trivial nothing. Unfortunately, we don't know who they are compared to the people who are going to get ill and either get ill chronically or worse, die. Uh, and on their way out, they're going to cost the NHS an awful lot of money, which it wasn't planning on spending. Right. So you have to you have to conserve the NHS. You, you hear terrible stories of people who've got non-COVID illnesses who need to have an emergency operation, mm. or they've got cancer, or they've got heart disease, and they need help now, and they can't get it because the hospital's full up of COVID patients. So collectively, we have to do something to make the health service work efficiently yeah. enough that it can cope with the COVID. Now, largely, sorry to say, it comes down to money. Um, and society has to decide how much it wants to spend on letting people live their lives normally versus locking them up to protect society and the NHS. It, it's a balance and it's really challenging. And I don't think it's an easy one to give a glib answer to. Yeah, well, I don't think they're getting it right at the moment. Dr Lawrence Buckman, thank you very much indeed. North London GP, former chair of the BMA GP committee. It seems to me uh, that every single year we are told that the NHS is in crisis. Every single winter 
we are told the NHS is in crisis. Now, if the NHS is in crisis every single year, what does that tell you? Well, it tells me that the people running the NHS aren't very good at it and they need to get better at it. And the idea that we need to somehow give them more money to do that is an absolute and utter nonsense, isn't it? Because they've got more money than Croesus, the NHS. I mean, nobody gets more money uh, than the NHS, but they waste an awful lot of it. And it seems to me that the way that this government um, and most governments across the world are dealing with COVID is entirely incorrect because what they could be doing is actually taking a view on the disease. And that's what I think a lot of people would like them to be doing. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewellery of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweller since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Now, uh, some of you may know that we do a podcast from this show uh, every single day. It comes out every single afternoon. It's very successful. It's in the iTunes podcast charts. It does very well. And many of you listen to it uh, on a very regular basis. I also do another podcast with Kevin O'Sullivan called The Thought Police, uh, which is also quite successful and also in the charts. Now, would you believe it? After all I've said about them, uh, Harry and Meghan are now going to join in the podcast fray. This is what they're going to be doing. Shall we, shall we start? No, ladies first? No, say it, because I think it sounds really nice with your accent. What, Archwell Audio? Arch, yeah. Archwell Audio. I mean... Really? <laughs> shall we? Yeah, let's do it. Hi, guys, I'm Harry. And I'm Megan. One of the things my husband and I have always talked about is our passion for meeting people and hearing their stories. And no matter what the story, they usually offer you an understanding of where someone else is coming from. And at the same time, remind you in some way of a story about yourself. And that's what this project is all about, to bring forward different perspectives and voices that perhaps you haven't heard before and find our common ground. Because when that happens, change really is possible. And you know, this is also a moment to celebrate kindness and compassion, something we saw in so many places this year and which will underlie everything you hear from Archwell Audio. So that's what we're up to. And first up... Is a holiday special. A holiday special. Give me a small break. Let's talk to Charlie Ray. Charlie, for heaven's sake, I mean, just when you thought that, uh, you know, they couldn't get any more cheesy, uh, it's now the king and queen of Spotify. Uh, It's ridiculous. I I, I mean, I listened to the three-minute trailer that they've they've put out that you've just played part of uh, this morning. And to be perfectly honest, if anybody can stand more than 30 seconds when it actually arrives on the airwaves... (laughs) This month, I'll be very surprised if we deserve a medal. I mean, this really is past the sick bucket time, to be perfectly honest. I mean, it is awful, absolutely awful. And I have to say, uh, Mike, I have got no objection to this pair making money. That's one of their avowed intentions was to be self-sufficient and not be a burden on the taxpayer. Fantastic. Apparently... Uh, on top of their 100 million Netflix Netflix deal, this one's going to cost, uh, give them something like, 
a 30 odd million we're not too sure how much but it's only for six months and can be extended what i object to is that clearly they're using their royal connections i.e their titles the duke and duchess of sussex if this was mr harry wales and miss mrs megan wales or megan markle they wouldn't get a second chance uh, at anything like this and i would i would say let's strip them of their titles they're no longer members of the royal family and they should not be uh, trading in on them at all well i don't understand why they could still use the names i thought that was all over and done with and i thought they'd agree that they wouldn't use the name and they wouldn't use sussex royal and all of that was gone uh, by the wayside but what i'm looking forward to charlie is finding some common ground with them because of course that's what they say they're looking for because uh, i'm not sure how much common ground most people would have with people that live in an 18,000 square foot house with nine bedrooms, 16 bathrooms and five acres of land. Well, there is, there is no there is no common ground with them. And, and you know, and another bone of contention is, Michael, that, you know, they left Britain and said, uh, that's it, we can't stand it anymore. You know, we're having such a hard time. We want to be private people. We just want to be left alone. Well, as I said to you before, Mike, you know, there isn't a day going by that they're not in the news somewhere. <laughs> I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. They are invading their own privacy. Right. I am tired of hearing about them, any, you know, anymore. Uh, well, sorry, that's not true because I, I love hearing about them because I come and talk to you. About <laughs> no, but I mean, it is remarkable. They just are, in their own words, in the kind of the technolo- technological terms of how we now speak, they are about as tone deaf as I can think of anyone being. Because there are people genuinely suffering around the world. There are people genuinely having a hard time, not least because of COVID or because of something else in another part of the world. But they're doing literally nothing for anyone apart from themselves. I mean, they've even said, we will be talking about our stories, ourselves. It's all about them. That's right. I mean, they're they're just a very walk and right on couple. I mean, they're not... You know, one of the things that, uh, you know, is amazing about the royal family is that combined the number of good works that they do they go down and they visit people who are you know hard done by who haven't got two brass farthings to rub together and they help then that you know they go down and, and and offer help in in raising money and everything else and these two just seem to have gone away from all that but still want to be the the duke and duchess of of sussex what they agreed not to use was the hrh titles and obviously sussex royal but they're still linked to the royal family and they are very much being seen now as the king and queen of america they really are the king and queen of cheese, I think, at this point, because, uh, to be honest, the most ludicrous thing that I heard in all of that uh, was Harry referring to the holidays, you know, because he's obviously forgotten that Christmas is a thing, because in America it's the holidays. Yeah, I know, he, he's... And it doesn't surprise you to find out that the uh, the force behind all this, the driving force, was uh, one Megan. Mm. Uh, you know, she's, she's definitely out there, and, you know, she's now invested in some sort of coffee cup company, uh, <laughs> in, uh, which has been run by a female entrepreneur. Of course it has. And guess what? And guess what? She sent a basket of this coffee round to Oprah Winfrey. Of course who, she has. Who, who then showed the world on her show that my friend M, you know, sent me some coffee. It's a, it's a latte. It's a some sort of awful coffee that you and I would never, ever drink. Right. It's just horrendous, isn't it? It really is. They just live in an absolute world of their own. No ideas at all. Charlie, great yeah. to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Charlie Ray, former Royal Editor of The Sun. Uh, as appalled as I am and as appalled as all of you are, judging by your reaction on Twitter, uh, to this latest manoeuvre uh, by uh, the Prince and Princess, the Duke and Duchess uh, of absolute and utter narcissism. What a joke. 
This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Carry on Christmas is the headline on the front page of the Daily Mail. And your heart kind of sinks slightly because, unfortunately, it's not very funny. Let's talk to Neil Oliver, uh, who's up in Scotland, unless he's made a break for it and uh, appearing uh, somehow in the Witness Protection Programme. Neil, a very good uh, morning to you. How are you, Neil? Good morning, Mike. No, I'm still here. Good. Still in- I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for having me again. Not at all. Very good to see you. Um, uh, we worked out today um, that uh, we've been talking to Peter Hitchens for 37 weeks, and I think you must be not far behind him. It's quite remarkable how many people have watched what we've done, watched what we've said, listened to what we've said, million, in the millions, basically. Um, and yet the political uh, masters that we have don't seem to be taking any bleeding notice. Well, no, it's just that... It's just that uh... The, the divide that has now uh, solidified between, I think, a, a great deal, a, a large proportion of the, of the general uh, public and uh, and the supposed elected leaders. Uh, and the, the two paths have diverged in a wood somewhere and to some extent we're, we're moving in, in different directions. Yes, it seems incredible, doesn't it? Because only, I suppose, two weeks ago, we thought, well, we're coming out of a lockdown. Um, hopefully things will improve. Christmas is coming. Um, it looks as though we will be able to see more people. Um, and a lot of people are fed up to the back teeth of being told what they can and cannot do anyway. But in the last few days, again, they, they seem to have this ability to sort of plunge us back into the darkness. It, it's, the, it's the way in which confusion is still is stirred into the mix along with everything else. Uh. Uh, you know, if, if they, if the, if the leaders and the people, you know, making the decisions, you know, if they're reacting moment by moment to, to the to the last conversation that they had with with somebody else that they thought was worth listening to and make policy on that basis, but out in the out in the, in the real world in which the rest of us move around, uh, you people have have made arrangements. Uh, uh, you know, people have you know booked time off work or the or they've arranged this that and the other. They've ordered provisions and, and whatever, and they've made travel plans. And if, if there's any possibility of those being cancelled now or people having to you know, significantly modify what they thought was coming, then that just adds, that just adds carnage <laughs> into the mix for people you know, who are trying to go about the business of living as much of an ordinary life as they can. And people can't be expected to react moment by moment on the whim of yeah. politicians and no, I mean, I was I was talking to to some people yesterday after we filmed Plank of the Week. Um, we were talking about the restaurant business and and the, the pub business, and and Carol Decker was with us, and she has a friend who's only just now, I think, yes, as of yesterday, managed to reopen their restaurant, having made it COVID secure, only to be greeted with the news that well, that's all very well, but now we've got to shut it again. And she kind of can't believe what people have been put through here. Well, I mean, I don't run a restaurant, I never have, but I can imagine that it involves bringing in a lot of fresh produce that you have to use, uh, you know, you know, a certain amount of meat, a certain amount of fresh veg and all the rest of it, and you'd, you'd invest a great deal of money based on the number of covers you thought you were going to do on a given week or a given month, uh, and that has to be, you know, you have to make use of that stuff before it spoils. Uh, and, to, and to go through all of that, make that investment, show that commitment to your business, and then be locked down or have your staff taken away from you, your doors closed or whatever, all of that stuff presumably just has to be, I don't know, maybe given away. Yeah. Maybe, you know, people just resort, you know give it away to, to homeless charities or whatever. But in any event, it, it, what had supposedly uh, been part of the ingredient, ingredients for a profit for the company to keep their, their, you know, their wheels on the wagon, mm. you know, now gets knocked away from them again. And it's just one step forward, 10 steps back you know, for people whose livelihoods depend on their ability to make informed decisions about reality. 
Mm. Because we keep hearing from those people inside the NHS. There was another one, an anaesthetist, I think she was, on Julie Hartley Brewer's show this morning, going on about how in, in you know January and February, the toughest months for the NHS. And we hear this every single year, that the NHS is in some kind of crisis because there's not enough money in the system, which is complete and utter tosh, as far as I'm concerned. You know, there is no organisation that gets more money in this country than the NHS. And frankly speaking, um, if we are worried about the NHS not being able to cope with people being sick, then what is it for exactly? And what that whole bit at the beginning of the lockdown, which seems like something from another era, uh, you know, which was which provided the time to create those Nightingale hospitals, mm. you know, of which there were several, which were never called into play, even when I believe that you know the, the first the peak of the first spike was the most threatening when we didn't have any idea. I think we just it was put in place. Yeah. All of that provision was put in place with, you know, with the Nightingale hospitals that had supposedly been built to take any overspill. Uh, and as I understand it, at the moment, there aren't excess deaths that would stand out in any long graph, you know, for the last 10 years or whatever. Uh, you, you know, so there's, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing particularly different about this year compared to mm. other years, apart from the fact that the, that the politicians and the scientists have created a crisis. Yeah. As I understand it, it's not a medical crisis at the moment. The medical situation is under control and always has been. Uh, but the political and economic crisis is man-made. Yeah. Well, it totally is. And this is the other thing uh, that we're sort of faced with is, you know, uh, the idea that, well, of course, we have to be careful about uh, our social activity. Well, I'm sorry. Social activity is what we do. You know, we are a social animal we are a sociable um, um, collection of, of individuals and you cannot look at me and say to me with any great sense that I'm going to understand it you best not really meet anyone very much for the rest of time because this virus is going to spread and kill you it's all for me for me there's, there's a bigger there's a much bigger picture we, we all appreciate you know what COVID means and what you know, and the and the and the measures that had to be taken, we get that you know, up, you know, up to here we are with with what has to be done to co combat COVID. But there's a bigger picture, and if you if you draw back and look at what's going on, the question for me is, you know, how how close does it all have to come home before we get before we stop turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to the misery of other people? You know, it's almost it's it's almost like a modern parable. You know, I read this week about the fact that in the Xinjiang province in China, you know, where, where a fifth of the world's cotton is made, uh, you know, so everyone wearing you know, nice, comfortable T-shirts and pants and socks made of cotton, it's coming out of that area. And, and all the evidence suggests that the people there are, are working in the cotton industry in conditions that are like modern slavery. You know, so if you're wearing those clothes bought, bought cheap online, then your comfort is spun from the misery of other people. And likewise, the, the, we've spoken before about the smartphones and the laptops and the, and the, the electric cars, you know, which, which are based around batteries that are made of lithium ion and solder on the circuit boards that's made of tin. And lithium and tin are harvested in dreadful regimes where people, again, children included, are working in conditions like modern slavery. You know, and yet people are using the phones. I am as well. The laptops, thousands of people are driving about in those electric cars, feeling good about themselves. But there is no getting away from the fact that any comfort and satisfaction that you feel is built upon the misery of others. Now, those people are far away. They're in Africa. They're in China. You know, they're out of sight and effectively out of mind. But now we have the lockdown. Now, 
for, for lifetimes, everyone has paid, everyone who works pays tax into the common pot. And now a certain amount of people have been put on furlough, where they're being paid from that communal pot. And yet others, millions who have also made the contribution to that communal pot, have for the best part of a year been left with nothing. So if you are furloughed, if you are paying your bills and buying food for your family and all the rest of it based on furlough, well, through the wall or just up the road is a self-employed family or someone in the private sector who hasn't had help or a way of making a living for nine months, then your comfort and security is happening on account of the misery of other people. Now, it was one thing when those people are thousands of miles away, but at the moment, people are turning up the misery of neighbours, people whose businesses are being destroyed, whose mental health is being destroyed, whose other ailments other than COVID are being neglected, but they cannot make a living at the moment. How close does it have to get? And for me, the sharpest, cruelest cut of all is the, are the elderly and the infirm in their care homes. Now, those were people, many of them with dementia and other conditions, whose hold on, on life, on reality, was, was predicated upon daily visits from loved ones. Mm. And for the best part of a year, they're cut off from that and they're dying lonely deaths because they've got nothing to live for. So at what point do we acknowledge the misery of other people? You know, this is supposed to be Christmas time, goodwill to all men. And in what way are we demonstrating that, manifesting that in any real sense? We're all about us. We're wearing, you know, people cotton clothes harvested by slaves, yeah. smartphones and electric cars predicated upon modern slavery under awful regimes. And now we've got people through the wall, up the road, unable to fend for themselves, unable to feed their families, unable to pay their mortgages, and still a deaf ear and a blind eye is being turned to all of that. And I do wonder, when there's a reckoning, when all is said and done, and we look back at how we treated one another, will we believe that as a society we have done right? Yes. And I very much doubt it. Because we've also, sense well, well, you're absolutely right, Neil, because we've, we've also entered this bizarre period, which for me... Um, is is kind of um, punctuated by politicians who believe that they know best and that only they know best and that the way that the, 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 the Nicola Sturgeon speaks, the way that Mark Drakeford speaks, less so Boris Johnson, but certainly Matt Hancock, you know, where they talk about you and your family as though you would willfully do them harm, as if you would, in fact, invite separate members of your family to come and join you, knowing full well that you might be killing them. I mean, it's complete, absolute balderdash, isn't it? Well, they're taking agency away from people. We're all capable. Everyone, you know, if you're, if you're lucky enough to have a family, you know, and, you know, bless, most blessed of all, you know, contact with an extended family, which means that you've got, you know, age ranges from babies through toddlers to the, you know, to the elderly at the other end of the spectrum. Mm. We, all, we all know and understand instinctively the needs of those people. And, and for people who've got elderly parents, elderly relatives, or, or people who are suffering from, you know, complicating, you know, health circumstances, diabetes, heart disease, respiratory problems, and all the rest of it. And we are, we are, we, we look after our loved ones. And if people would just be left alone to make those decisions for themselves without uh, those that don't know us, don't know our families, seeking to lay down diktats, rule by fiat, mm. as we're incapable of making any of those decisions for ourselves, it's insulting. But worse than that, it takes away and it undermines people's belief in their ability to take care of themselves. We are not, it's not a society, a nation of babies. In the, in the most part, it's a nation of people who are already in the business of taking care of their families and making the complicated decisions about life. Part of which is making sure that people who need care are taken care of. And we don't need that done for us by people standing behind podiums, you know, 
No, exactly right. Now you'll you'll be delighted to know, Neil, that, that your 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 line's a bit fuzzy today, but we're going to stay with it because there's something I want to talk to you about, which is not COVID related. You'll be delighted to know, and it's a piece in the Times today um, about an Egyptian archaeologist uncovering one of the biggest treasures of Egyptology in Scotland. Now, this is your area of expertise. So, um, what do you make of it all? Well, well, it's 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 very exciting. Uh, you know. I've something that was recovered from the from the Great Pyramid uh, in the early part of the 20th century and was was put into storage, was was lost and forgotten, effectively. Safe, but but lost and forgotten and overlooked uh, in, a, in, a, in in storage in, in Aberdeenshire, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and someone, some researcher has been going back through the storeroom and has stumbled across it. It's like a cigar box shaped thing with the Egyptian flag on it. And, and on opening it, what was found inside was a piece of cedarwood uh, which has been radiocarbon dated to about 5,000 years ago. And it was found inside the Great Pyramid. And it's believed to be a ruler, a, a bit of kit for, for measuring, uh, used by ancient Egyptians, probably, possibly, in the building of the Great Pyramid itself. Wow. And so this, so this thing has been lying out of sight and out of mind, you know, in a storeroom for, for all of that time. And now it's been brought back into the light. And, I mean, and, it, and it's, almost, it's almost poetic, I would say, that of all things, it, it, you know, it, it's a ruler because, you know, from ancient times, our species has desired to apply order and measure uh, to the chaos of, of, of the reality around us. You know, it, it's no coincidence that ruler means simultaneously something with which you can measure. And it also means somebody above us, like a king yeah. or God mm. who lays down the law and, and makes the rules. Even better, it, it's made of cedar wood. And, and people possibly associate cedar uh, with Lebanon. You know, that, that lovely song by uh, Paul Brady, The Island, you know, the yeah. skies of Lebanon are burning, those mighty cedars bleeding in mm. the heat. And mm. Lebanon was founded by the Phoenicians. And the Phoenicians were the great builders of the ancient world. Uh, their capital was Byblos, from which we get the word Bible and bibliography and book. Mm. And it was their alphabet that gave us the written alphabet that we use today. But they were great builders. And King Solomon, the biblical King Solomon, brought the Phoenicians to Jerusalem a thousand years before the birth of Christ, 800 years before the birth of Christ, and had them build his first temple. The temple in Jerusalem was built by the Phoenicians, and no doubt they had rulers made of cedar wood. Now, yeah. I'm not suggesting that the Phoenicians had anything to do with the Great Pyramid. It was built by the by the ancient Egyptians. But, but the fact that almost nothing was found in the modern era in the Great Pyramid, it was looted in antiquity. And so it was only fragments left behind, but how perfect and how, how meaningful that something that may have been used in the building of the structure itself has been found. You know, we've just been talking about things close to home being overlooked, being precious things among us that, that, that attention was not being paid to. And here we find, by chance, in a storeroom, you know, something so valuable that, that's, that, that tells us something about what it is in our species that we have always needed to be able to lay order in order to make sense of the, of the world around us. See, this is why I wanted you to talk about this, because all I could think about when I saw the story this morning uh, was that the ancient Egyptians sort of managed to become extinct, despite the fact that they were some of the most clever uh, and ingenious people ever to have lived on the earth. And it made me think of where we're ending up. It's very interesting that when you say that, there's an existential crisis around the, the, the ancient Egyptians. You know, their, their civilization lasted for, you know, 3,000 years. You know, I mean, by the time Cleopatra, uh, you know, was walking about in the temple of Karnak, okay, now Cleopatra is closer to our time than she was to the people who built the pyramids. Mm. 
Okay, that's the span of time that the Egyptian civilization goes across. But they became preoccupied with death. It became a society that was preoccupied not with what was happening to the living in the living world, but was, was making all of its preparations, especially for the elite, for what was going to happen in the next life. Mm. And they, they took their eye off of the living world. And in a very profound and meaningful way, it became a kind of a moribund, uh, morbid society. And eventually the rest of the world that had, that had life and a preoccupation with the living flowing through it like fresh water, Egypt was, was left behind like a kind of lagoon, a kind of a backwater, and, it, and it, it fell away from everybody's consciousness. And so even though it had lasted for all of that time and it had managed to sustain itself and to maintain an idea across not just centuries but millennia, because it stopped paying attention to the living and became overly fascinated by death and the dead, in time it became nothing more than a, you know, the Great Pyramid is essentially the biggest gravestone on the planet. Well, isn't that interesting? Because I fear that this is where we are going, that we are becoming fascinated and obsessed with COVID and the people who die of COVID, from COVID, with COVID, despite the fact that it's not and shouldn't be a dominating um, situation. But for the whole world, it seems to be. Yeah, we, we have. I think we've got a tendency as a species. We're programmed to, to take for granted what doesn't change around us. You know, you look out of the window and, and the static things, the houses, the, the things that are always there, the trees, you don't see them. And you're, you're programmed to spot the moving object, you know, a, a sparrow or a squirrel in a tree. Mm. You know, that's what captures your attention. And so in, in our situation at the moment, what has appeared like, like a terrifying big squirrel moving fast is COVID. Yeah. And everyone, you know, like a cartoon cat, our society's attention has just focused on this one thing. And, and everything else in the picture is being left is being left out of sight. And you know that you know that bit in, in, in the, at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark where they take the, the ark and to keep it safe they put it in a big warehouse mm. full of other important things. And you know instinctively that it's going to be safe in there, but also that it's going to be forgotten. You know, it's going to be hiding in plain sight. It will go into that space, and as soon as we turn our backs on it. It will, to all, although it's safe, it will, to all intents and purposes, be forgotten. And there, there's there's something very important that that we should learn from that. You know, we've we've put the we've put the elderly and the infirm away somewhere safe, out of sight, where we don't have to look at them. Mm. And at the same time, we're forgetting them. Those people are there and not there at the same time, and it's too easy to forget them. And, you know, in the, in, the, in the example of that cedarwood ruler from the Great Pyramid, you know, it was only by chance that somebody doing diligent, careful work stumbled upon something very precious that, although it had been put somewhere safe, had fallen from everyone's attention and to all intents and purposes was lost and forgotten. And we are losing and forgetting things very close to home, through the wall, in the building up the road. We're not paying attention to them. And something important and precious is being lost, just like that cedarwood ruler from the Great Pyramid. Fascinating. Neil, great to talk to you again. Thank you so much. Uh, you speak for so many people, and we've already got people thanking you for speaking up for those uh, who work for themselves, who haven't had any help over this. Neil Oliver, archaeologist, TV presenter, uh, philosopher, I call him now as well, because what a remarkable take 
on what has been found up there in Aberdeenshire uh, from the uh, Great Pyramid of Giza back in the ancient Egyptian times. Because, you know, you might think we've gone a bit mad now. You might think now they're talking about ancient Egyptians. Well, hey, what? Listen, these are the people who made all sorts of incredible things and nobody could quite believe how clever they were. And then suddenly they were gone, right? So... Let's not take it too lightly uh, and let us indeed remember what we should be remembering. Don't forget things because after a while they won't be there anymore. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.